0: Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. I am thrilled to be into this third week of our series, Um, Good News, and see if I can get it up. Here we go. The last few weeks, we've been talking about some different things. Week one, we talked about how Jesus truly was Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the one true God full of grace and truth, the word of God, so loved you. That was week one. Week two, we saw how the incarnation was not a new thing, but the continuation of God's rescue mission from the beginning of the story, Like this wasn't something that you know, oh, popped into God's head and said, you know, I think I'll do this this time. No, it was always planned. Today, today we're going to talk about how control, how control is a myth that leads to destruction and how surrender is the only path to peace. Let me say that again. We're going to talk today about how control is a myth that leads to destruction and how surrender is the only path to peace. The headline for today's service is this, a star is born, scandals abound. A star is born, scandals abound. So you heard me say that surrender is the path to peace. Hear me, okay? Surrender is the path of peace. I'm not saying that surrender is an easy path. Surrender is a path of peace, but I am not, by any any stretch of the imagination, trying to tell you that this is going to be easy. In fact, today we're going to talk about two narratives. One is the virgin birth. And secondly, think about the two, the juxtaposition here. The virgin birth and the massacre of the innocents. The virgin birth and the massacre of the innocents. The first highlights the path of surrender, while the latter uncovers the myth of control. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter. Matthew chapter. Let me get it right. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Scandals abound. It says this. Now, the birth of Jesus. Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before, that's an important word, before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Stop. Just Let's just stop. Can we just stop there for a second? Matthew just kind of throws that out there like it's like an everyday occurrence. Let me read it again. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you were so accustomed to this story that this doesn't even like register on the weird factor for us. It's weird. That's a weird story. Okay? Let's give it some context. You keep open uh, Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to flip over to Luke, and I'm going to give you the context, okay? It'll be on the wall for you. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went, uh, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The virgin's name was, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now that's a nice greeting. But you got to remember, it's from an angel. This is not normal. This is terrifying. Even though the, the greeting is nice, it's still terrifying. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Oh, Mary, don't you know? No! I'm going to get you in on a little secret. This has never, ever, ever happened before. So Mary is like, uh, What? How is this going to be? A very appropriate question. For us, it's like, come on, Mary, obviously. No, this is a big deal. And I'm going to tell you, this has huge implications. When when she says the next piece, it's a big deal. This reality that she's about to contemplate and enter into carries a lot of stuff. So she said, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and has, is in her sixth month, with whom, he's called, uh, with whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And I can only imagine her saying, that settles it. I got it all. It's all figured out. That does not an explanation make. Oh, 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 the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow me. That makes perfect sense. She doesn't know how this is going to work. But what is her response to God's call? I'm gonna tell you a little a little secret. It's, the, it's, it's an act of surrender. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant. There's a great word right there. I'm a servant. It's surrender. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Basically, she's saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I surrender to it. Whatever God wants to do in and through me, let it be done. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. I love that. She went, into, it went in haste. She's like, I'm out of here. This isn't going to happen. I'm getting out of here. It says it. It went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of uh, Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. All right, so that's the context. There's an act of surrender. But that surrender to God's will is not going to make her life particularly easy. It's not necessarily going to be easier, but it is going to bring her peace. So let's get back to Joseph. Go back to your Matthew 19. And her husband Joseph, being just a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, let's just breeze over that, right? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. They're betrothed. They have not gotten together. They're not living together yet. Now, I don't know if you know that I I had to do some research on this. The Jewish history behind this is there is a custom that you would get legally married. You get legally married. And then the man would not, let's put it this way, would not prepare the home for the wife until after the legal marriage. Why? It's financial. The dowry involved in a marriage would also bring money into, this, into the man's house in order to build his house. So he would, she would stay with her parents while he built an adjoining set of rooms. We say house, we think like, you know, western, you know, raised ranches or something. <laughs> you know, we're talking about he just built a room uh, onto his family's home. And when that room was done, we see this in the parables of Jesus, the the bridegroom would come, and it could be a night, noon, it could be any time, he would come and he'd get his wife, and there would be a procession from the wife's home to their new home, and then they would consummate the marriage, and then the party would begin. Now, it's it's not unheard of that the groom and the bride couldn't really wait till that day, and women got pregnant during this period of time, and it wasn't scandalous. It just wasn't the traditional way to do it, okay? So this has happened before. That's happened before. But I want you to understand, even if the town didn't think it was scandalous, what's Joseph thinking? I, I, I marry you, and you haste away. You go hastily away. And now you come back, and there's a baby bump. Okay, so Joseph, I mean, he has to to deal with this, and he does it in a righteous way because he obviously is somebody who's special. He wouldn't have been chosen by God to be the stepfather of the Messiah, the son of God, if he wasn't a good guy, right? So let's just finish his story. And her husband Joseph, being just, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do you hear this, this cadence of do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Don't be afraid of God's plan. Don't be afraid of submitting. Don't be afraid of what God's doing, right? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, that settles it. Again, we're looking at this from from the context of knowing the story, Joseph wakes up from this dream, and he has to make a choice. Am I going to assert my rights? Am I going to assert my authority? Am I going to set myself up as the the judge of my own life, the ruler of my own life? Or am I going to submit to whatever this is? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Joseph doesn't necessarily know this. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did, as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph and Mary are literally wed Per the Jewish custom of the day, they didn't come together. Mary goes to Elizabeth's house. She hastens away to the south. And Mary comes home from being away for months, a hundred miles away from Nazareth. And she's found to be very pregnant. It's no small thing. Joseph, Joseph must decide what to do. He submits to the will of God and moves into God's plan. Here we have two people who are willing to submit to the will of God and do hard things that he asks of them. The premise of the sermon today is that submission, submitting, is the path to peace. And control, the myth of control is a lie. I think a lot of people, especially in the Christian, in Christian cultures, Christian world, we think that when we, when we submit to God, everything should be like tiptoeing through the tulips. I mean, everything should be just easy. Why, why do we think that? I think we have a misunderstanding of what our job is in this world. When we were created in the image of God, we were put into this world to work it by the sweat of our brow. Now, sin entered into that reality and made it much more difficult. But we were never just supposed to be like um, relaxing on clouds with golden harps. Which, honestly, if you think that's what heaven's going to be like and you're okay with that, you're a boring person. I mean, maybe for like five minutes, I'm I'm like, bling, bling, that was fun. What's next? Eternity? Thank you, no. I'm telling you, that's not what we're going to do in eternity. That's not what God has us doing now, and it's not what we were created for. We have such a high level of of importance. We put such a high level of importance on leisure in our culture today. And if something is hard, we're like, "Mm, I don't think so. That must not be God's will for me. Or if God asks us to do something hard, like give, give away our money or, or, or give away our time, or, mm, that's, not, that's not for me. The path to peace is a path of purpose. Your life, a purposeful life, is the path to peace. And that purpose comes in submitting to the plan of God. Controlling it any other way is a lie. So let's, let's just break apart Mary's submission. God's favor is on her, but this disrupts her whole life. God's favor on her disrupts her whole life. I'm sure she never dreamed of being the son of God's. I don't think she ever think, think that the, the God of the universe would call her mom. I don't think she ever dreamed of that. What girl does? And though it's a great honor, it, the reality is that it must have been very hard and would be, continue to be a difficult road. The will of God did not come with a bunch of extra perks like wealth, comfort, protection from difficulty. Do you notice that? Before the message of the angel, she was lower middle class at the time. After the message of the angel, she's still lower middle class. When Jesus comes, he wasn't upgraded to the presidential suite. No. People, 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 I love how people think this is so scandalous. They were born in a manger. That's, that's dirty. There's animals there. Did you know most people in the first century were born within 10 feet of an animal? And in fact, the manger was probably the most appropriate place for her to have the child in that class. Now, I'm not saying it's like you know, they're kings would not doing that. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? But lower middle class, this was probably like privacy for them. To have the child in a guest room of the house that everybody's coming to when everybody's there. Can I just o- open up the uh, historical world to you? They didn't have walls like we have walls. There was basically a room. And in the center of the room was a pillar that supported the second floor, if they were wealthy enough to have a second floor. And then they partitioned off the different areas for sleeping and eating with curtains, kind of like we've done here. Now, I'm just going to let you in on a secret. If you heard the doors opening and closing a few times, that's a lot more pleasant than hearing a woman screaming in labor. It's not private for her or them. So to be able to be separated from that situation would have been Kind of a a, a privacy. Okay? It's interesting. But it doesn't change the fact that the Savior of the world came to a lowly state. And after he was born, he wasn't escorted into the palace. No, that perk didn't come with Mary's surrender. The will of God did not come with a bunch of perks. Yet, there was no one in history aside from Jesus himself, that is more revered and loved than Mary. But it came at a cost. Nobody in the world, in all of human history, more revered, aside from Jesus himself, than the mother of Christ. Now, we don't know much about Joseph, poor guy. He only shows up here in this story, and then a little bit later when when Jesus is about 12. And what does he do then? He loses him. Good job, dad. Again, Joseph, the will of God completely disrupts Joseph's life. A simple carpenter from a backwater town must have, uh, he has to now navigate being stepdad to the Messiah. We will see how his obedience will lead him to places he never dreamed he would go. I can tell you right now, before the angel came to him in that dream, Joseph probably would have lived in a small village without much travel his entire life. People didn't travel like we travel now. I mean, 100 miles is a long trip. And that's how far it, get, it takes to get from, from Nazareth down to Jerusalem area, Judah. That's about it. That's it. Then you go home. There wasn't extra, there wasn't, you know, extra money to you know, plan trips. You just lived. You paid your taxes, paid your family, went to synagogue, did your job, and you died. It's Kind of like today. Death and taxes, only two things. So let's get to the story. Now, the story in Matthew has nothing to do with mangers and stables. Zero. There's no mention of it. It actually just refers to Jesus' birth in the past tense. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born, that's the only reference to the manger. I mean, that's it in Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod is troubled. So we're going to talk, we're going to, this is going to be like a juxtaposition from the submission of Mary and Joseph to, to, to Herod's deal. Okay? He's troubled. And all of the area is troubled as well. Because history knows when Herod gets troubled, everybody else better be troubled too. The guy is a whack job. He, he does things. And people are like, whoa, what the heck is going on? I mean, he just does things. So that's why the whole area is troubled as well. I was actually watching a, uh, a video on Herod preparing for this message. And they were, they were leading up to that statement, like, why is the whole area troubled? And the, the, the historian's like, because Herod was crazy. <laughs> that, that's why, I, was, I was waiting for this really intellectual explanation. Like, no, Herod's nuts. People were afraid of him. When he got nervous, everybody else got nervous. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judah. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. You start getting the pathology of, of Herod here. was when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house not manger going into the house they saw the child with his mother and they fell down and worshiped him and opening their treasures they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to herod they, they departed to their country by another way. All right, and this is where Herod, he, he tried to control the situation. But we know control is a myth. Control causes different things. We'll get into this later. But just understand that Herod has been thwarted by the angel. So verse 10, now when they, heard, uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel, oh, no, wrong one, 16, my bad. Oh, where am I now? 13. All right, thank you. Now, they had departed. Okay, good. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, Joseph, again, this is a whole submission thing. Joseph is not planning this thing. I mean, he hasn't gone to the the travel agent, booked a room. He's just, he's letting... God, lead him step by step. And I think there's an unsettledness to that, but also, oh, oh thank God <laughs> that I'm not really in charge of this thing. Can you imagine being in charge completely of the promised one, Messiah? He must be a relief that the angels was intervening and telling him different things. Anyway, they go to Egypt. I don't think he ever in his life would have ever expected to, to uh, go to Egypt. But that's what has happened. They rose, and they took the child and his mother by the night and disappeared into Egypt, excuse me, departed into Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Now here's where Herod, this is where I wanted to get to. Herod gets upset. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all uh, that uh, region were the two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this is, this is, Herod. Interestingly enough, submission comes with the true king. The myth of control comes when you're a phony. When you're a phony. The act of the massacre of the innocents, which is, it's called now to this day, is what Herod the, the Great, so let's put that in quotes too, Herod the Great is known for. This is his number one list of accomplishments on his resume is you killed a bunch of babies. Now historians, they don't really, some of them say that this didn't happen. But most of them don't say too much about it because they know that it could have happened because Herod was just that whack. Herod did worse things than this. So they're like, oh, we don't see this in history um, Josephus was Herod's actual scribe and Josephus, Josephus says nothing about this which is not weird because Herod was such a, a narcissist that he wanted his, his legacy to be we'll get into that in a little bit but real historians say we don't have any actual extra-biblical corroboration to this but we're not surprised <laughs> because he was just that nuts okay it's what he's known for but it's unfortunate. Let me tell you why. Because Herod was actually an excellent soldier, a brilliant communicator. And by far, out of all his accolades, he was, literally, he was literally world-renowned for his building ability. He was an architect par excellence. He had a lot going for him. Herod was a great man. But he believed the myth of control which turned him into a tyrant, tortured by his own paranoia. Which is what the myth of control does to all of us. It creates a fear of loss that feeds anxiety, narcissism, depression, and paranoia. So, the fear of loss is this idea that we can control things. And I can can relate to that. Most leaders can. Leaders typically want to be in control. And it's hard for leaders to to, to submit, to give that over. So what did Herod fear? He feared his loss of power. Herod was a power player at the time. He rolled in social circles uh, with historical figures the likes of Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, and Octavian, who would become Caesar Augustus. In fact, it's an interesting story. He backed Octavian, I'm sorry, he backed uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in their bid to be emperor of Rome until he realized that Octavian was winning, and he was such a power player that he was able to apologize to Octavian and he turned against Mark Antony and ended up retaining his, his rule. He was a very shrewd dude. Okay, but he knew these people. He, talked, he was a power player. His control over his kingdom was predicated on pleasing Rome by exerting power over the people. He had the power to a point that chief priests, when, when we see um, the chief priests coming into Herod's court to decide where the, where the son of, Je- uh, of um, the Messiah will be born, these are his people. He's placed them there, and he has a, a massive amount of power over the, over the people by controlling the religious institution, the, the hierarchy of the religious institution. So he's got lots of power, and he's afraid he might lose this. The more he used his power and influence to influence religious and political sway, the more people despised him. And that's one part of the myth of control. I'm going to let you in a little secret right now. Ready? Ready? You can't make everybody happy. The more you try, the more you'll be despised. The more you try to control things and people, and th- the more they will despise you. It's a myth. The second thing he was afraid to lose. He feared losing his loss. He fears the loss of control. Control, the myth of control, is like a snake eating its own tail. You've got to have more control and more control and more control in order to control what you don't feel you're in control of so that you don't lose control. The more you try to manipulate and fabricate a sense of peace and security by yourself, the more you must control things. Well, i got things taken care of. I don't want, I, I, I'm good right now. I'm in this little bubble. I'm good. I'm happy. Nobody change anything. It's un. You just can't do it. In order to maintain control of his rule, Herod went to some extreme lengths. Here's some. He had ten wives. They were all wives that were, he married in order to solidify control of regions. But he had a favorite wife. And history proves out that she was, uh, you know, she was actually very beautiful. Uh, she was like your kingly arm candy type of scenario, right? But I think one day she looked at him wrong or something. He killed her because he thought she was trying to subvert his rule. Out of those 10 wives, he had 15 kids. So he killed three of them because he was afraid that they were trying to take his... his, his uh, kingdom from him that's paranoia as we read in the book of matthew he was willing to go to great lengths in order to destroy any threat to his throne they were just threats they weren't kids to him he dehumanized people so that he felt comfortable with their deaths they were not deaths, they were, th- they were not children, they were threats. The last thing he feared, and I think this is the one he feared most of all, is he feared his loss of image. So much of his life was spent trying to build the image of the great man. In fact, when he was referred to, he liked to be referred to as Herod the Great. That's how he identified I'm great. You're going to tell me I'm great too. All right? He wanted to be the great man. Everything he did, everything he did had an angle in his mind of trying to control the circumstances so that he would be seen as great and that um, down through the ages, he would be known as great. He had this desire. What did he do? He was known for his massive building projects. He had his, his, his inscriptions stamped all over these things. Let me give you some Masada. Anybody know what that is? One of the most widely known of Herod's construction projects was a fortress palace <coughs> excuse me, located on the top of a large rock plateau on the west side of the Dead Sea. <coughs> excuse me. Masada was one of his earliest major projects, completed about 31 B.C., this mountain fortress was nearly impossible to attack. It's still there. You can go visit it. And um, it, it was this self-sufficient little fiefdom. He had all his own servants in there. He, had, he, he built cisterns so that he never had to leave. He could, he could, like, hold up in there because he was afraid that someone's going to come after his throne. He'd have to escape, and he'd have to go to a fortress. It took Rome years. To, to infiltrate this when a group of zealots held up in there. But Rome was pretty ingenuity, they had pretty good ingenuity, and they actually did it. But today you can see the ramp, the siege ramp that Rome placed on this thing. It took them, and one of the things that's funny, in, in the historical uh, rec- records of the Romans trying to, to siege this fortress, is that the Romans, it's out in a dusty area, right by the Dead Sea. It's really kind of barren out there, and the Romans are like, like starving and thirsty, and, they're, and all they can hear up on the top of the mountain is them, like, splashing around in the pools up there, <laughs> and the Romans are getting all upset. But this was Herod. One of the other things, at the, he built the Herodium. It's built a, uh, to commemorate the great battle of south, just southwest of Bethlehem. Herod used thousands of workers to build his own hill. He built a hill. Then he built a circular fortress and uh, palace on top. The fortress was 200 feet across and had four towers rising high into the air. The lower complex had pool as big as that, uh, so big that Herod was known to sail a small boat on it. This is the guy who did the massacre of influence with like his little toy boat. Little, just picture him out there in his boat. It's like weird. Anyway. Now in Jerusalem, Herod built huge, he just just reimagined the city of Jerusalem. Um, He built new walls, a palace, a fortress, a theater, a stadium, and an amphitheater. However, the height of his Jerusalem project was the temple complex. Herod wanted to surpass even the splendor of Solomon's temple. So he expanded the temple mount and reinforced the walls. Now This is so interesting because Herod did all this stuff, right? How how crazy is this? That Herod built a splendor, the the splendid temple to God for him. It wasn't about God. It It was for him. He wanted to solidify his name in history. And he did. He went so far that again, the temple project caused the Jewish people to despise the man who was revitalizing their temple. Why? Because he he uh, instituted some major temple taxes on top of the already huge Roman taxes. The people were already, most of them were in the same state as Mary and Joseph, lower middle class, if not impoverished, and now they're paying the Roman tax and they're paying the temple tax in order to build this thing that they didn't really need because they already had a temple. So Herod, all, everything he tries to do to solidify his name, to control the narrative, causes people to actually despise him even more. But his building of the temple inspired a proverb of the day. It says, whoever has not yet seen Herod's temple has not seen a beautiful building in his life. That's how gorgeous it was. Everything that Herod touched was calculated and controlled to ensure his image and legacy. And what is he known for? Butchering a bunch of babies. That's what he's known for. In the end, the myth of control is just chasing after the wind. He is such a control freak. This will just this this will, this, will, this this example alone will tell you that people don't really question that this massacre of the innocents happened because this is how far Herod was willing to go. At the end of his life, at the end of his life, he had failed miserably at getting an image that was good. People hated him, so he knew that when he died, there would no there would be cheers rather than tears. So he took a bunch of beloved Jewish leaders and he put them in prison. And he said, on the moment that I die, I want you to take these guys and I want you to kill them. And there's other texts that say also their families. Historical texts, not scriptural. Historical texts and their families. Why? So that at the time of my birth would be marked by great sorrow. Even though it's not for him. It's a psycho. It's a psycho. But that's where control, it's a myth of control. You think it you controls things, you think you, and you find that you can't, so you have to go to another length and another length and another length. It becomes paranoia. It becomes depression. It becomes anxiety. You cannot control it all. The path to peace is surrender to God. It's not an easy road, but it's the path to peace. Anything else is chasing after the wind. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 2. And I, and I see Herod in this writing about Solomon. 2, 9 through 11 says this. So I became great and I surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Then I considered all that I had, my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Herod died a miserable death that included many things, but most disgusting of them is some kind of flesh-eating disease. And when he finally died, guess what? They just let the guys out of the prison because that's dumb. There's nothing they could do to him. Herod can't like be mad at them. He's dead. So they let him out, and instead of tears, there was actual cheers at his death. You can't control it. The road to peace is surrender, and that is the path that Jesus himself walked. Jesus didn't ask us just to surrender. He showed us what it looked like. John 530 says this, I could do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. In your Bible, it's going to be written in red. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear I judge and my judgment is right because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Mark 14, 36 says this. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. This is deep. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right before his death. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is Jesus' example to us as a people on what it looks like to surrender. I want to jump over to Philippians chapter 2 for you for just a second. Okay? And it says this, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves this is the path of surrender let each of you look not only to his own interests but also on the interests of others now i love this have this mind among yourselves which was is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on a form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven, and in earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now stop right there for a second. Stop real quick. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what? For what? To the glory of God the Father. Even the praise that will be brought on to Jesus is to be deflected to God. He was obedient. He took that path of surrender. It was hard, but God exalted him. And even that exaltation is to be turned back to the God of everything. That's where we find peace. We do not find peace in control. We do not find peace in this world. We find peace when we find purpose in the plan of God. That's why Jesus taught this in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like a path of least resistance, does it? It does sound like a path of purpose. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever wants to control the narrative will lose the narrative because control is a myth. what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what should a man give in return for his soul? I just see Herod written all over that sentence. He gained so much in this world and he died a miserable death and people cheered when he was gone. He gained the whole world and he forfeited his, his soul, his legacy, his name. He's not known as Herod the Great Builder, or Herod the Great Soldier, or Herod the Great King. He's known as Herod the Great, the Killer of the Innocents. What is, a, what is a profit if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He will repay each person. According to the level of his submission, for the sake of this sermon. Where are you today? I have to tell you. I'll be, let's just, like, take the veneer off for a second. Let me just be honest with you. When I was evaluating my way of looking at the world, and I was putting up against Mary and Joseph's attitude, and that of Herod, I saw a lot of Herod in me. I saw a lot of Herod in me, and that that made me feel good. I think if you're honest, many of you, some of you be like, man, I'm totally Joseph. Just, I'm going to go wherever the angel sends me. Going to chill out in Egypt for a little while. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like easygoing. That's, uh, I want to be that. That's what my goal is. But if I'm honest, I see a little bit of Herod in me, wanting to control things. Wanting the narrative to be mine, not God's. In the juxtaposition between these two stories, whose legacy is better? Obviously, the answer is Mary and Joseph's. Control is a myth that leads to anxiety, paranoia, depression. we got to be careful. Again, I reiterate, the path of the peace, the path that God has you on, it's not going to be a boring one. It's not going to be an easy one. It may even be harder than just being the wallflower. But I'm telling you, get out on the floor and dance. Make some Make some moves for the kingdom. Let God work in your life, guide and direct. And know it will be hard. It's a cross to bear, but it will provide for you peace, joy, and the respect of your peers. I think it's really important that we understand that um, there is a time there is a time. I'm, I'm, it's scripture. It's not me saying it. But I'm, so I'm going I'm to guarantee this on the premise that it comes out of this book. There is a time when you're going to stand before your heavenly father. And if you live a life of submission to his will and plan, he's going to say, well done. Good and faithful servant. I'll tell you what, man. I want that. I'd rather have the applause of heaven than the applause of people. And I'd much rather that than, <laughs> I'd rather have some tears at my funeral than cheers. So. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you call us to be in partnership with you, to serve in your great narrative, to be to be players and to be characters in your story, not our story, your story. God, you are the author. Help us to just submit to your story for us. And God, I pray that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in that story when it gets difficult, because Mary and Joseph had some difficult times. We don't even hear about Joseph. He must have died before the ministry of Jesus. But we do know that their lives were significant. Herod's was a life most people would want to forget. So Lord, help us to align ourselves. Lord, you sent your son to be the example of what it looks like to walk in submission to the Father. Great things can happen. It is the only path to peace. Help us to realign. Help us to see where there's some Herod in us. Help us to strive after some Mary and some Joseph in our lives. And Lord, bring us back next week for the grand finale of the story where we actually get to see a manger for once. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. Have a wonderful week. Don't get too busy this week to enjoy what Christmas is all about. All right.